Turn to your little bulletin thing, if you're not there already. We're going to look, look uh, as Ben already said, at Luke chapter 9. Uh, and as you're pulling that out, I want, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. Uh, why are you here? Uh, by that I mean, why has God placed you as a student on the campus of New Mexico State? That's really what I want us to think about tonight. Uh, A large part of why you're here, a large part of what it looks like for you at this season and stage in your life is simply to be a faithful student, to study, to go to class, to open your books, to prepare for a career. Uh, That's a major component of why you're here. Uh, It's a major components in your following the Lord Jesus Christ and being a disciple. Uh, But I want us to kind of think beyond that. Uh, It's not the only reason that God has placed you on this campus. You're here to do something bigger than study biology or history or engineering. And this evening, I want to invite you to think about what it means to be part, part of a mission that's bigger than you, uh, part, of, part of a season of your life that's more than just preparing for a career or sowing your wild oats. Um, what does that look like uh, right now uh, at your place as students at New Mexico State? And so chapter 9 in the book of Luke is really a turning point uh, in the entire narrative of Luke. Up until this point, the question that has kind of dominated this book is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this guy who has shown up and done all these weird things? And earlier in chapter 9, that question is kind of definitively answered. As Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus confirms that, and then all of a sudden, a couple verses later, God the Father actually speaks from heaven and confirms that exact same thing. It says to the disciples, says to you and I, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And so now as Luke has kind of clearly told us, clearly portrayed for us exactly who this Jesus is. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, sent into the world to save his people. And the way that he's going to do that isn't the way that the disciples expected. The way that he's going to fulfill his mission isn't what anybody was anticipating. He isn't coming with a sword to drive out Roman soldiers, he's coming to die on a cross. That's how this Messiah (coughs) fulfills his mission. And so once Luke has kind of answered that question, who is Jesus, he begins to ask a second question for the remainder of the book. He asks a question in the text that we have before us, and that is, what does it look like for us, What does it look like for you and I to follow this type of Messiah? 
So let's, uh, let's look at the text and, uh, uh, and see what Luke has to say. Luke chapter 9, I'm actually not going to read everything that's in front of you. We're going we're to jump uh, a little bit here. Uh, Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim, proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now skip down to verse 17. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us with such clarity and such force and such power. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts and minds. Pray, Lord, that as we look into your word and that as we consider it, you would apply it to our lives and that you would mold us and transform us and help us to live as your followers in the place that you have put us. And we ask all of this for the sake and for the glory of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen. 
So there's one theme that kind of ties these uh, several stories together that we just read, and that theme is mission. Jesus has begun a journey towards Jerusalem, a journey to accomplish his mission, a mission that includes dying on the cross for our sins. And in the process, you notice that Jesus sends out first the 12 disciples and then 72 others after them to accomplish a mission of their own. If you look down, you see in verse 51 that the whole section starts with a statement, a statement that at first doesn't seem to fit with the rest. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus on a mission. This is your Savior with one thing on his mind. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he's headed there to die. There's nothing that will distract him, nothing that will sway him from that mission. What Luke is making clear in this verse is that the suffering and the death of our Messiah was not an accident. Jesus deliberately moves towards the cross. The way that the kingdom of God will be established, the way that, that his people will be saved, isn't through strength, it isn't through confrontation. The way that his kingdom will be established is through his death and his resurrection from the grave. The mission of Jesus, the reason that he came into the world, was simple. To save sinners. And Jesus was resolute on that mission. But, but here in our text, the thing that I want us to focus on this evening, and it's a pretty remarkable thing, is the fact that as followers of Christ, as followers of Christ, you and I are called to actually share in the fulfillment of that mission. That's a remarkable, remarkable thing. You and I are called to share in the fulfillment of Jesus' mission. So if that's true, then we need, to, we need to understand, we need to do a couple things. And what I want to do this evening is really, from this text, help us understand what our mission is. Help us understand how that mission is accomplished and finally, discover what our motivation or where our motivation comes from to do this. So the first thing we need to understand is what our mission is. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are called to be a messenger of God's mercy. That's what we see here in our text. If you look back down at verse 52... You see that Jesus sent out messengers ahead of him to enter the villages of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. And then down in chapter 10, verse 1, we see a very similar thing. He sends out 72 more. Again, these men are sent ahead of Jesus, sent two by two into every town and every place that Jesus will enter on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
They're disciples that are preparing the way for the Lord. Preparing people to receive him. They're messengers, but they're also messengers of a very particular message. They're sent to be messengers of God's mercy. You see this in verse 8 and 9. When the 72 enter the towns that they're sent into, they're to heal the sick, and their message is to be, the kingdom of God has come near to you. They're to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom. And the reason that that kingdom has come is because the king is here. They're going ahead of that king, proclaiming his presence. And proclaiming his commitment to deliver, his commitment to save his people. It's not a proclamation of doom. It's not a proclamation of judgment. Rather, their message, our message, is a proclamation of mercy. A proclamation of forgiveness. You and I are called in the same way to be messengers of God's mercy. Our mission, the thing that we are called to do, the thing that you are called to do, even here on the campus of New Mexico State, is shaped, it's shaped by the very mission of Jesus himself. And what did Christ come into the world to do? For what purpose did he set his face towards Jerusalem? And for what purpose does he send his disciples out ahead of him? It's to save sinners. To offer himself to die on a Roman cross. And the shocking part is, is that the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, in one sense, really aren't sufficient to accomplish the mission of God. Something was lacking. Something more was needed to save sinners. And that's a shocking statement. I mean, I really want you to kind of soak in that for a second. And I'm not alone in saying it. In fact, the the Apostle Paul says almost the exact same thing. The Apostle says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That's what he says to the church in Colossae. Paul is filling up in his own flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction. How in the world can Paul say something like that? What what could be lacking in Christ's affliction? Wasn't Christ's death Wasn't his resurrection enough to save sinners? Well, yes and no. Christ suffered. Christ was afflicted in order to pay the penalty. To pay the penalty for sin. In order to appease the wrath of God. And that's a mission that the Apostle Paul, that you and I... Don't take part in. We don't have to pay the penalty for our sin, for anybody else's sin. We don't atone for those things. But Paul makes an amazing statement. He recognizes that Christ's death, while it was sufficient to pay the penalty, 
for every last sin. His work is continued. His work is accomplished as his people go forward and proclaim that very reality. Proclaim the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing. This is no small task. You're called to bear witness to the death and the resurrection of Christ. You're called in a profound sense, if you are a follower of Christ, to fill up in your flesh, in your life, what is lacking in Christ's affliction. You're sent into the world to make his death and his resurrection known, to be a messenger of his mercy. How important do you see yourself to the kingdom of God? What we see in this passage is that all those who are called to follow Christ are also called to join him in his mission. And that is a glorious and a beautiful thing. It's a remarkable thing. Your gifts, your testimony, aren't just important, but in one sense they're vital to the kingdom of God. No matter who you are, no matter what gifts you have, you are important to the kingdom of God. You are vital to God's mission in the world. Not because he is powerless, not because he is needy, but because he is gracious and he's chosen to use us, to use his people, to bring us in, to participate in the great and glorious mission of his son. So turn again to that question. Consider what I asked at the beginning. Why are you here? Why has God placed you on the campus of New Mexico State? And the reality is, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been placed here. You are placed here by God to participate in his mission. He's placed you here to bear witness to the gospel to love the people that he places around you, to fill up in your body what was lacking in Christ's affliction, to engage in the most important and the most glorious mission in all of human history. That's why you're here. That's why he's brought you to New Mexico State. But not only do I want us to think about what that mission is, I want us to notice in this text how this mission is actually accomplished. And our passage emphasizes three things about the way that we are to carry out this mission. It's to be accomplished with diligence, with dependence, and with compassion. If you look down at the text again, in in chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus comments to the 72, and he emphasizes the diligence that they must show in their labors. He tells them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The reason for telling them that the workers are few is to encourage them not to delay. There's much work to be done. 
but there's few hands to do it. And the same point is made down in verse 4, where Jesus tells them to greet no one along the way. The disciples, just like him, aren't to be distracted from the task the Lord has placed before them. He sent them to a location, two by two, to particular towns, and they are to greet nobody along the way. But to head to that location in eager service, diligent service of the Lord. But their ministry not only needs to be carried out diligently, it also needs to be carried out in dependence. This is not a mission that they or that you and I are able to accomplish in our own strength. And so in verse 2, Jesus also emphasizes the necessity of prayer. In the middle of the verse, he says, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then he tells them a little further down, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. They're to be completely dependent upon the Lord for their success and for their provision. And when the 72 return in verse 17, they confess that that the only authority that they had, the only power that they had, came from his name. He is the Lord of the harvest, and only He is able to use them. Only He is able to bring about change and to touch the lives of the people to whom He's sending them. But finally, this is a mission that's to be carried out with compassion. This is why Jesus rebukes James and John early in this text. And some of you may realized the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. And it must have been difficult for James and John to preach grace, to preach mercy to the Samaritans. And so they find themselves kind of in the same position that Jonah is, offering mercy and offering forgiveness to a group of people that they don't believe deserve it. And it doesn't appear that James and John are too disappointed when the Samaritans reject their message. In fact, they're pretty happy about it. All right. And they ask Jesus, okay, is this our opportunity to call fire down from heaven and to destroy them? And Jesus quickly rebukes James and John. They, you and I, are not agents of God's judgment. We're messengers of his mercy. In all of your interactions with people, in all of your efforts to share the gospel, these three elements must be present. Diligence, dependence, and compassion. And our struggles, I think, often arise in simply keeping these in balance. Most of us get hung up on one or another. In college, I volunteered for a a little while at a boys' penitentiary, and I I went into the ministry kind of knowing that it would require a great amount of diligence, a whole lot of commitment. I was committed to doing what I had to do, and I was going to make sure that whatever was necessary, I did. I prepared Bible study after Bible study, but soon I realized that I could talk till I was blue in the face, But it wouldn't make any difference. 
All of my efforts were going nowhere. And the problem wasn't with my diligence. The problem was with the way that I approached the ministry. Without any dependence upon the Lord, without any compassion, any genuine love for the people that God brought into my life. Compared to all the time that I spent preparing, I had scarcely stopped to pray, to pray for these boys. I had stopped to take the time to really get to know who they were. For me in that moment, the struggle was with compassion and with dependence. And I wonder which of these three you struggle with most often. Is it diligence? Perhaps Jesus is calling you to serve in a particular way. But you know how costly that service will be. Perhaps you're like the men in verse 57 who only offer Christ excuse after excuse. I'll follow you, Lord. Only let me go do this. Only let me take care of this. Just let me get past midterms. And then it'll be different. Next semester, I could, I could renew a, a better commitment. Perhaps it's, it's not diligence. Perhaps it's a struggle with dependence. The reminder that, that so many of us need to hear is that our labors, your labors, are completely dependent upon the blessing and the Spirit of God. You can be able to give your testimony in English and Spanish and three other languages. You can be a musician. You can be the greatest listener that there is. You can have all the boldness to share your faith with the people around you. Whatever gifts you have, do you recognize that they're powerless? They're powerless without the blessing of God's Spirit. Or perhaps your struggle is with compassion. There's many zealous Christians who are always looking to work Christ into a conversation. But all they end up doing is beating people up, abusing people with their words. Perhaps you've run into them on campus. Perhaps you've been beat down by similar conversations. In some respects, this is exactly who I was in college. I was the most arrogant and obnoxious person you, you could imagine. The, the person you didn't want to talk to Jesus about. I was zealous. I was well-meaning. But I could honestly say that all of my conversations, most of my conversations, weren't motivated by a genuine love for other people. They weren't motivated by a genuine desire to communicate the, the gospel. They were motivated with the desire to win an argument, to be right. This is how I treated the boys in the penitentiary. It's how I treated my peers on campus. It's how I treated, above all, my own father. No compassion, no love. To be a messenger of God's grace must be people of compassion. People who genuinely care about the people that God places around us. 
The final thing that I want you to consider this evening is where our motivation comes from. Why is it that we seek to fulfill this sort of mission? Why is it that you at all should sacrifice your time, your energy, your talents, maybe even your grades, in order to commit to a group like RUF, in order to love the difficult and unlovable people on your floor, in order to reach out to strangers, in order to build new relationships, in order to share your testimony, in order to offer hope to those who are hurting and love to those who are empty. Where does this come from? And to me, this is probably the most interesting part of, the, of this entire passage that we read. In verse 17, at the very end, we see that the 72 return. And they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to, your, to, subject to us in your name. Unlike the efforts of the disciples, of the 12 disciples in Samaria, the efforts of the 72 actually seem to be highly successful. They have a degree of success. Not only do they preach and they heal, but as Jesus commanded them to, but they find out that they actually have the ability to cast out demons. They're pretty thrilled by this. They're excited by all of this. And Jesus tempers them. They're thrilled. They're excited because of the privilege they had of seeing God use, of seeing God use their efforts and bless their ministry. And there's something good and there's something right in that. We should rejoice in that. I hope you rejoice in that. And that sometimes will be the case. It will sometimes be the case that you do take the time to build relationships, to love on somebody, and you get to see how the Lord uses it in powerful and profound ways. And there's other times that you pour your life into somebody. And it seems to go nowhere. It seems to be a loss. It seems to be a waste. Look down at verse 20. Why do we do it? How should we respond? Jesus affirms the authorities that the disciples have. He tells them that he even saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, their ministry was having an effect that they didn't even know about. They got to see a small piece of it. You will only get to see a small piece of what God is doing through you. And the Lord sees the big picture, sees that, that, that yet he's actually using your testimony, your love, your relationships in ways that go far beyond anything you could imagine. He's using a kind word. He's using a soft glance. He's using them in ways that you'll never imagine. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. The joy of our salvation is the great motivator for our ministry. It's the only thing that will keep you going. 
Our desire to share the gospel is only going to be as strong as our joy, as the joy that we actually find in the gospel. And if you find someone with a great desire to share their faith, then chances are you found somebody who has a great delight in the gospel. And if you find somebody who really loves the gospel, chances are you found somebody who's really also going to be engaged in ministry. They go hand in hand. Jesus says, let this be your joy, that your name is written in heaven. Have you ever seen the news, you know, a report where somebody is saved from an accident, you know, pulled out of a car, pulled out of a burning house? How do they normally respond in those experiences? No matter what the reporter seems to ask, no matter what they're trying to draw out, the only thing that that person is able to do is sing the praises of the, of the individual, the fireman, the policeman, the, the average Joe that was walking down the street who saved them. All they can do is sing that person's praises. Thank them and let the world know. How much more should this be our response to the gospel? We of all people should not be able to be silent. We're sinners. Sinners who have been saved by grace. We're men and women who have experienced God's mercy. We're poor people who have received the riches of Christ. Dead people who have been made alive. And the only way for us to be messengers of God's mercy is for us to be men and women who have first experienced that mercy, experienced that grace in our own life. Only the man or woman who has reaped the benefits of Christ's mission are actually able to join in that mission. Have you reaped the benefits? Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven? knowing that those sins will never be counted against you, will never be brought up again, knowing that there is no longer any condemnation, there's no shame for the things of the past, there's no guilt. That joy, that power is the very thing that fuels our ministry. It's the very thing that leads us to joining Christ in his mission to save sinners. God doesn't use the righteous to build his kingdom. God doesn't use the wise and the persuasive. He uses sinful, insecure, inarticulate people who have experienced his grace. And if that describes you, then you are called to join him in his mission to this campus, to this community. That's my desire. My desire is that to see every single one of you find your lives engaged in something bigger, something bigger than yourself. To see the next eight months, the next four years engaged in something bigger than preparing for a career. We have the privilege of joining Christ in building his kingdom. Christ willingly 
turned his face towards Jerusalem. He turned his face towards Jerusalem to bear the wrath of God on behalf of his people. He gave his life to ransom the souls of men. And now you and I are called. We're commissioned by Christ himself to fill up in our bodies what was lacking in Christ's affliction. To do what he intentionally left undone. That we would have the privilege, that you would have the joy of actually joining with him. And seeing him use you. In the midst of your insecurity. In the midst of your fear. Seeing God use you. You are called to be messengers. Messengers of God's grace. Do you join me in prayer? Lord God, we do thank you for this great and glorious privilege that you give us to join you in your mission in the world. Lord, I do ask that uh, you would give us a vision. Lord, that you would give this group a vision for ministry here on the campus of New Mexico State, that you would give individuals in this room a vision, an understanding of the calling that you are placing upon their life for this semester and for the days and the months and the years ahead. Lord, we thank you for your grace, grace that is so abundant that you would not only wash away our sin, but that you would call us to participate in your mission with you. And we pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.